purposes. This is the word of the Lord. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parashamda, Atha, and Daphlon, and Aphsla, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Aridatha, and Parmashtha, and Arisai, and Aridai, and Vasatha, the ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hands on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you, and what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther says, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ton, ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the kings commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Susa. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was the 13th day of the month of Adar, and the 14th day they rested and made a great day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and the 14th and rested, and on the 15th day making that day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who lived in rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and a day on which they send gifts and food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the day on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned from them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, and they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days of sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do 
and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast pur, this is cast lots, to crush them and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan had been devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in these matters and what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obliged themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and the days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Hazarus in the words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed season as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and they had been op- and they and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regards to their fast and their lamenting the command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and full account of his high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. And are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And now I shall take a break after reading that great reading. So we've just come through Christmas. Did you have a good Christmas? Did you have a good New Year's? Did you get everything that you wanted? I got no less than, I think, five Lego sets, so it was a good Christmas for me. Hopefully you got what you wanted, what you asked for. Hopefully you got to eat all the nice treats and things that we eat around the holidays I was excited to be with my family Christmas Day. I got to have my mom's stuffing. My mom's stuffing is the best stuffing that there is. It's what we do at the holidays. We feast. And holidays tend to be a bit of a mixed bag because for some of you, you might say, yes, well, I too got no less than five Lego sets. And my Christmas was also very good. For others, you might say, no, it wasn't such a good Christmas. It wasn't such a good time. I didn't get exactly what I wanted. My family was arguing and bickering the whole of the time. And we just got done with Christmas, but if you think about it, Easter is really only a few more months away, isn't it? What are you looking forward to? The decorating of eggs, the hiding and finding of eggs. Ham, ham is the appropriate Easter meat, right? Are we worried about time with family again? This is the temptation of holidays, to be so worried about the feasting and what we get out of it that we lose sight 
of the one that we are remembering. The book of Esther, the whole of it, is about a great reversal. This day had finally come, the 13th of Adar, the day in which these two edicts would come up against each other. You can, you can see the billboard, right? It's like Holyfield versus Tyson or whatever it was. Something big, Haman versus Mordecai. Against God's people, for God's people. This Sunday at the Metrodome. Who would win the day? In the end, we know the Jews won the day. They killed tons of their enemies. They dominated them. And, and the, the rest of this book, really, chapter 9 and 10, are just kind of the bow. They're wrapping up the story. This is the end. This is what happened. And as we come and see this wrap-up, I want us to think about this, re- this theme of reversal. As I was reading commentaries for this, three, there was a commentator, Ian Duguid, who had three points that I just couldn't get out of my head, and so I'm stealing his three points, but I'm giving him credit. A reversal described, a reversal celebrated, and a reversal reconsidered. A reversal described, celebrated, and reconsidered. As we come and see this reversal, we see it described as being nothing less than utterly comprehensive. The the total number of, of... Enemies defeated was 75,000 in two days. Israel was busy. Because here's what happened. They're going out and you have these two edicts because we couldn't get rid of the old edict, right? The word of the, the king cannot be revoked. So we have the two out there. But the fear of Mordecai had come come upon the leaders of all the lands. They were afraid of his rising power. And so they helped the Jews. It's like if we come into Pell City and we say, okay, today's the day. And we got the police chief on our side. We got the DA on our side. They're all on our side. And they're going to help us because the fear of Lakewood had come upon them. Silly, right? But that's what it's like. Everybody, whether they're affiliated with Mordecai or not, are afraid of what he can do to them, so they help him. And the destruction is described as being total. All those who sought to do him harm, including Haman's ten sons. This is a continuation of that holy war that we've been talking about. That holy war that Saul did not finish. And there are none now left to come against Israel. The totalness of their retribution was staggering. It's so staggering that Ahasuerus, this laissez-faire, loves to see a good beat-up, looks at it and goes, wow, that's impressive. You did, hey, you want another favor? I'm so impressed by what you've done today. I'm going to give you another favor. Ask anything you want from me, and I'll give it to you. Esther goes, okay, give us another day to whack off our enemies, to take care of them. And that's what he does. They take a whole other day. She said, we want to hang Haman's sons. Note, they're already dead. We want to hang them from a tree. We want to show God's curse 
upon them. <coughs> this holy war was to be utter and total. And notice over and over again it says they refused to take plunder. They weren't doing it for the riches. They were doing it in a holy way. It's a complete reversal that is described here. Even as we consider this in our, for ourselves, we can think of times in our lives where things have come up and we, we didn't think it was going to turn for us, but it did turn for us. And the turnaround work, turnaround worked out in our favor, maybe at work or with our families, and we see ourselves vindicated. But even in these times, we always have to be reminded of the one who is in control. Throughout the book of Esther, as much as of what is being said, we have to note what is not being said. Because it doesn't say, and God delivered them from their enemies. It doesn't say this. Mordecai doesn't say, and we're going to rejoice in God on this day. Does it? We have to remember the one who gives the vindication. The one who gives the reversal. There is one who is sovereign over all that happens in our life. And what's going to happen is this, the second thing we see here is a reversal celebrated. And celebrating is right and it is good. And this is what they do. He says, hey, this is awesome. We just took care of our enemies. Let's party. And that's what they do. Hey, in, in the majority of the provinces, they do it after the day after, the 14th. But, you know, in Susa, they get that extra day, so they do it on the 15th. Because they got the two days. I mean, you think about it, you can't send that word out to all the kings. They just got two days while everyone else got one day. And so they're going to celebrate. And this is a good and biblical tried and true practice. After God delivered Israel from the angel of death in the... In the in Exodus, we see a reminder here. Celebrate Passover as an example of this. Remember God's protection when he delivered you from this plague. But notice here, it doesn't say, and God set aside this day. It doesn't say that. What does it say? And Esther and Mordecai, they set aside this day. And this would be a day where they would celebrate throughout all generations. Even today, still the Jewish people celebrate this day. It continues on. Isn't it interesting how the word of God is always true? That's just a side note. It doesn't come from God, though. It comes from the people. The people bound themselves to feast, to rejoice, to give presents. They remember being delivered from Haman. But Mordecai doesn't say, remember how God delivered you. Teach your children about God's faithfulness. The vertical dimension is absent. And again, this came from a commentator, but it was so funny. It's as if it's saying, hey, give your friend a shirt that says, Esther is the reason for the season. And move on. It's not the celebrating that was wrong. It's always a good thing to remember. But God must be the focus of that remembrance. It was God who reversed the fortunes for the Jews. He cannot be overlooked. They cannot forget him. How easy is it to celebrate the turning of darkness into light and forget God? How easy is it? Well... I'll turn that question to you. 
You just celebrated Christmas. How easy is it to forget Jesus in Christmas? I became curious. So I began to search Christmas albums. Famous artists who have released Christmas albums. Did you know that Barbara Streisand recorded Silent Night? She's singing Silent Night, but does she have any idea about what it is? Neil Diamond recorded Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Bob Dylan, Oh Come All Ye Faithful. These are people singing about the incarnate Christ who have no idea, from all recollections that I can tell, I'm not the ultimate judge of all creation, and I don't know their hearts, so on and so forth, disclaimer. But from the way they live their lives, it does not look like they know God, and yet they sing these words because the season, the feasting, has become merely about the doing, not about the one who has done. And we can be guilty of this as well. We feast and we celebrate year after year. We celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Easter. We even celebrate our birthdays and other days. And we have to ask, where is God in all of this? Do we remember him, the one who has delivered us from futility and death? We often see the stickers and the billboards, Jesus is the reason for the season. Okay, I'll give you that. But what does that mean? It's a nice saying. How often do we actually stop and and do it? Because we're called to remember the greatest reversal in history. At the end of the day, the reversal we see here is nothing compared to the one we see in Christ Jesus. He came as man so that we might be free from our enemies. And there's a day coming. A day that God in heaven only knows where holy war will be reinstated. And at that time, every man, woman, and child will be called to account. Where will we stand? What are we remembering in? What are we feasting in? Will we be among the 75,000? Or will we be freed from, by the edict of the king? This is the only outcome. Because Purim, or Purim, whatever you want to say it, is nothing compared to Christ. And we have to, at this point, reconsider this reversal. Because chapter 9 says a lot of things here, and a lot of it is a recap And a lot of it is just talking about what they've done here. And we get to chapter 10, and you might be like, what? What's the point of chapter 10? And King Ahasuerus imposed a tax. But we see something, I think, actually more staggering in that. Because Esther and Mordecai, they're feasting and they're celebrating and they're happy. We're on the upswing. We're in charge. And the people are saying... Hey, we gotta, we gotta get rid of all our enemies. And Mordecai's in charge, and he's our guy. And King Ahasuerus imposed a tax. At the end of the day, who's in control? You remember when that tax was removed? Oh, the day of Queen Esther was made queen. Oh, I'm so delighted in this woman. I'm gonna get rid of the tax. There's tax relief for everybody. And now it's It's back. 
There's been a reversal. It really seems to put Esther in perspective for us. It shows us that things have not really changed as much as they may, may think they have. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Yes, you may be in charge, but you're not ultimately in charge. Ahasuerus is still king. His interests remain above all others. This is a negative reversal. Mordecai's position was good for the people, but it was not the best thing for the people. It was not the best news for the people. That could only come through a different person. They needed a greater reversal. They needed, in fact, the greatest reversal. The Feast of Purim shows us something greater that is yet to come. One is coming. One has come who is greater than Mordecai. This one who would be prince of peace. This one who doesn't accomplish holy war on the nations. He does not come and destroy the enemy of God. He comes and destroys enmity between us and God. Through Christ, all are brought together in peace. Not just the Jews who won over their enemies, but all people. It comes through holy war being declared on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is an interesting thing we have to remember here. Because the target and object of God's wrath on the cross was not Satan. It wasn't. The object and target of God's wrath on the cross was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who became sin, the one who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And yes, in that, he defeats Satan. But Satan was not the object of God's wrath. It was Jesus Christ. He enabled the greatest reversal that could ever happen. And so for six hours, in agony and pain, Jesus Christ hung on the cross as a sign of God's curse. A curse upon his own son. This makes a big difference in understanding how we understand forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness, reversal, all of this comes through Jesus who has loved us. And now he brings us into the presence of the King of Kings. And so we can call him Emmanuel, God with us, God for us. We have to understand why we feast and why we fast. And as we do so, we get a glimpse of where our priorities lies. I've been seeing many churches in the area are starting fast. We're going to do fast for the New Year's. And I see this every year. They start doing these fast at the New Year's. And they're good. I'm not saying they're a bad thing. But we have to ask ourselves, why are we fasting? Why are we feasting? Are we looking beyond this world. 
to the heavenly realm where Christ is enthroned. When we think about Christmas, when we think about Easter, what are we exulting in and what are we despairing in? Oh, my wife didn't give me the Legos that I wanted. It's a terrible day. That's not true. She always does. Oh, the stuffing didn't turn out how I wanted it to turn out. And I didn't get my peanut butter balls and my mom didn't make fruitcake, which is true. And I'm upset about it. What do we delight in? What do we despair in? The festivals we celebrate are expose our idolatries. Our hearts can be condemned by what we actually rejoice in. And we know the feasts we celebrate are nowhere commanded in in Scripture. Nowhere does it say, on December the 25th, the 25th day of the 12th month, shall you celebrate Christmas. Nowhere does it say on whatever Sunday that it happens to fall upon with the, I don't know, Easter. Nowhere does it say that. We're not commanded to celebrate these days. But it's worth it. It's worth celebrating the greatest reversal ever. But we need to come with thankfulness that death has been transformed into life, that peace has been given to us and can never be taken away. We should celebrate. We should rightly celebrate that God has been good to us. We should rightly remember the poor, both poor in spirit and the physically poor. We should rightly give gifts to them, but we have to remember why. It's a special time where we share the gospel and the good news, pointing people to Christ, the true light of the world and the true Prince of Peace. The Puritans refused to celebrate Christmas and Easter. Do you know why? Because they believed Christmas and Easter were every single day. It wasn't set for one day, once a year. It was meant to be every day, every day that we come into this place, every morning that we wake up, we are to be celebrating Christmas and Easter, pointing people to Christ, delighting in the gospel. There should be a constant joy and celebration about the way we do worship. Do you come in here on a Sunday with joy and celebrate God? That's a hard thing. We come in, and oh, I, I like that song. I, that song, say, well, I don't like that one so much. That one's hard for me to sing. It's just, uh, I'm tired, and it's cold outside. It's cold, and I want to be in my bed, and I can be snuggled up, and I have a fireplace at my new house, and it's really warm. Do we come with joy and gladness? We get to be here celebrating our King of Kings. Do we have joy? Because here's the reality. You've been spared. If you are in Christ, you have been spared this death sentence. The kingdom of Ahasuerus is gone. The empires and authorities of this world will fade away. But Jesus Christ, the king, will reign eternally. That fact is immutable. As we leave Esther, and we're leaving Esther, and we're moving to Ruth next week, we have to be reminded of Jesus Christ. But Daniel, Jesus Christ isn't in Esther. We don't even see God's name mentioned in Esther. But it's all over it. It's all over it. 
Look at this pale reflection. Look at this reversal of the people of God and know the reversal that you have been given. You have the one true king. You have the one true deliverer, the one true savior of the people of God. And there is none like him under heaven and under earth. Be reminded of him. Give thanks to him in all times, in every season, every single day. Do you get out of bed and go, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, with joyful, gladful hearts, because he has reversed your condition. You have been delivered from a great evil. You have sin and death. You have right now victory over your enemies. You have a deliverance, a complete deliverance that is sure. And it is right to celebrate. It is right to be thankful. And I, I, I love Christmas and I love Easter. But they have to be focused on God. God, through the person of Christ Jesus, has given us the last and final deliverance that we will ever need. He has freed us from sin and death. He has brought us into his kingdom. And so let us with glad and thankful hearts come before him and worship him and praise him. It's not something we do two times a year. It's not something we do once a week. It's not something we do twice a week, maybe. It's an everyday kind of thing. Where is your identity? In what do you hope? In what are you resting? In what are you trusting? If we're giving gifts and we're drinking wassail or whatever you want or figgy pudding, all that goes with it. It all doesn't matter unless it's focused on Jesus Christ. And we've lost it, I think. Even, even as we try not to, we do focus on the presence. And we focus on the food and we focus on the decorations and the lights, the hinding and fighting of eggs for some reason, bunnies, Santa, and it gets lost. And it's hard for it to not get lost. But that just means we need to work all the harder. It means we need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ. And I tell you what, if we're doing that every day of the year, how much easier does that become in those two, two days that we set aside? Let us focus on Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Jesus Christ. He who has come and reversed our state. He has delivered us from sin and death. He has brought us into life. Would we indeed feast and rest in him? Each and every day, we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen.